truly legendary story. We are so glad to be able to... Okay, yes, I'm in Gotham, up. everybody. <laughs> Reporting live from Gotham City. Welcome, welcome back to season two of the Linen Suit and Placid Tie podcast. This is the podcast where we dissect and analyze the amazing, the suspendous, the spectacular power of storytelling and learn how to harness that power to supercharge our everyday lives. I'm Gorev. And I'm Kevin. You said that like you're an NPR. And I'm Kevin. <laughs> and this is my mindfulness time of... <sighs> um, can I just point out, we are, we're back from our break, our way too long break. We're finally filming again. I'm so excited. And I did that intro line in one take. Ladies and gentlemen, I think that's like the first time I've ever done it in one, and it's right off the bat. <laughs> For a little more context, we tried another recording session about four hours ago. He tried to open Top Hat ten times and failed. Yeah, yeah, yeah but this Let's isn't continue. Top Hat. This is the intro. I suppose I got the intro in one take, so you know what? It's fine. Um, and yes, we've been a little bit on a break, but Kevin, Kevin, the second half of season two, the people we have coming to help teach us storytelling, I'm so damn excited. It's unbelievable. We can't tell you who they are yet. You will see them, but we can't tell you yet. It, it's, it's hard for us, really, but it's going to be exciting. Yeah. We can tell you about this week's guest, and we'll get that in a second. But, you know, Kev, over the break... Um, we, we, we did some cool stuff. We went to San Diego. We saw a couple comedy shows. And, um, you know, we, we learned something about me and you before seeing shows. Um, we, we approached the pre-show things a, li- a little differently. Uh, we saw one of my favorite comics, Taylor Tomlinson. And then before Taylor Tomlinson, I'm like re-watching a bunch of her uh, specials, watching a bunch of clips. And I before Taylor Tomlinson, I tried to get you to watch some of these specials and clips. And what did you say to me? We were going to watch her show. You don't have to do homework for a show you are watching. You're going to be the audience there. It's, it's I'm, not... I'm disagreeing with you here. I assure you, I had a deeper experience with Taylor Tomlinson's story than you did. Because I knew her style of comedy. I knew her past jokes. Now, if it was the same hour, if she was doing the same uh, stand-up routine, fine. But now I knew her past. I knew her journey. I had a deeper understanding of her story because of all that. And it allowed me to appreciate that hour more. I mean, my thing is, it's not going to change the, the fact that you're going to her show. Because if you really like the content, you know, you still be going regardless. And if you didn't like it at that, that point, you know, it was too late to cancel the tickets anyway. Which, she didn't suck. She was amazing. Now, if we were to have her on the show, that would be a different story. But, well... Taylor, if you're listening. Okay. This is our pitch. Someone send us Taylor Tomlinson. Anyways, she is not a guest we have booked, but we can tell you about today's guest. Kev, who are we speaking to today? Well, if you've ever heard of Batman, which you have, I know that, you'll be excited for this one. Michael Uslin has been the executive producer of every Batman film, TV, animation feature you've probably ever heard of. From 1989 
Tim Burton's Batman movie, to the Dark Knight trilogy, to the 2022 The Batman film starring Robert Pattinson. He's been the executive producer of all of these films. And he was... Wait, 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 wait. Wait. Yes. Bat- all Batman films? Like, even even things where Batman's kind of related? What about the Joker? He wasn't involved. Oh, in yes, he was. Grof, yes, he was. Even the Joker, too. Um, wait, even the new one? Even the new yeah. Joker and the new Batman coming out soon? Pun not intended, but that is also true. And wait, so you're telling me for 33 years, this man has been the executive producer of one of the most iconic American stories of all time? Yeah, it, it's shocking for me, too, that we have someone like this on the show and we get to talk to him, but that is true. He, he's been in everything Batman, and this was the person who brought forth the idea of dark and seriousness into Batman's cinematic adaptations. Brilliant storytelling mind with a legendary story. So let's get started. We're so, so glad to be joined by Mr. Michael Uslin, who has an amazing story that we'll get into. I would love to tell you his story, but I should leave it out to himself to tell his own story. So Michael, to start us off, can you tell us a bit about yourself? What is your story? bit about myself. <clears throat> I am the poster boy for fanboys. I grew up loving, loving comic books and superheroes, but all comic books. Um, my mother said I learned to read before I was four years old from comic books. By the time I graduated high school, I had over 30,000 comic books dating back to 1936 which filled my dad's garage. He never got his car into the garage even once. I was at the first Comic-Cons ever held on the planet Earth uh, back in the mid-60s in uh, New York City. I was the kid who pestered his folks on any Tuesday we had off from school to drive us to New York so me and my friends could go on the DC Comics afternoon tour. I was one of the early members of comic book fandom as it was being organized and started writing for fanzines when I was 13 years old. Um, so I am the ultimate uh, comic book geek. And uh, by the time I got to high school, it was interesting because if girls heard that I was 15, 16, 17, and still reading and collecting comic books, it was considered about the most uncool thing you could do back then. And my status was date challenged. Um, and, and that was that period of time. It, you know, the idea of a comic book movie being a date movie was as absurd a concept as you could ever imagine at that point in time. But my life took a dramatic turn at Indiana University in my junior year. And that is a story in and of itself. And I know you've had one of the most intimate and important relationships with Batman. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about your journey to the Batman movie franchise, why Batman and the impact Batman has had on your life and vice versa? All right. So let me take you back to when I was 13, 14 years old. 
I live in New Jersey, an hour south of New York City. I found out early on that mostly all the comic book companies at that time were based in New York City. And as a result, the editors, the writers, the artists, the people who had been creating comic books since the late 30s all lived in either New Jersey, Manhattan, or Long Island. So I was writing for fanzines and I would reach out and make contact. We had this thing called a phone book back then, which that's a whole other explanation, but I was able to track down where they lived and sent them letters, handwritten letters, and they agreed to let me come to their homes to interview uh, them. Uh, plus the comic book companies agreed to let me come into New York and interview the editors at all the different comic book companies. So I was able to get the history of comics, DC and Marvel, and how the superheroes were created, literally straight from the horse's mouth. And my first mentor in the business was a wonderful man, lived in Englewood, New Jersey, named Otto Binder. Otto was the primary writer of Captain Marvel during the 1940s and 50s. He created Mary Marvel, Captain Marvel Jr., and Black Adam, for example co-created, I would say, with C.C. Beck. He opened my eyes to how the comic book industry was born, how DC and Marvel were born, how the heroes were created, how comic books were created. And he introduced me to C.C. Beck, the co-creator of Captain Marvel and the Marvel family, and so many other people connected to the golden and silver age of comics. And his background's important, and I'll explain why. The first Comic-Con, the first big Comic-Con was New York City. Uh, 1964 was a small edition. 1965 was a bigger edition because there were some 200 people that showed up for it. My parents took me and my friend Bobby, and it was about 9.30 in the morning, and we see sitting in the bar Otto Binder and another guy and his daughter Mary. And we quickly start going, Otto, Otto. And he goes, hi, Mike. Hi, Bobby. Come on in. And we're sitting there and um, we start talking. And Otto says, boys, how would you like to meet the creator of Batman? And our jaws dropped. And we said, yeah. He said, Michael, Bobby, meet Bill Finger. <laughs> I think we are two of maybe three or four people left on the planet Earth that actually knew, met, and talked with Bill Finger. Wow. And it was Bill Finger directly who told us the story of the creation of Batman. And we were puzzled. We go, wait a minute. Bob Kane created Batman. He's got that little box on every comic book. He's the creator of Batman. Who's this guy? And he explained the whole story. And that was incredible. And that was probably the moment that I became obsessed with Batman. And I, since I was seven years old, I loved this character because he was human. And I identified with him more strongly than I did with Superman or later the Hulk or Spider-Man. Um, he had the greatest supervillains in history. And as Stan Lee always used to tell me, he said, Michael, the greatest and most long-lasting superheroes are the ones with the greatest supervillains because ultimately it is the supervillains who define the superhero. And he was right about that. And Batman had the greatest rogues gallery of supervillains and inarguably the greatest supervillain ever created. 
And if anyone listening here has no idea who I'm talking about, you shouldn't be listening. <laughs> so, and, and then of course he had the car, the incredible car. And the other magical element to it was his origin story. Batman's origin story is primal. It is emotional. It is jarring. It is shocking. And to a seven, eight-year-old boy who never once thought that one day his parents would be dead, had such an impact, I can't even begin to describe it. And it's that origin story that ultimately transcends not only borders around the world, but cultures. And these are the elements that make Batman so successful, so important, and add up to the reasons why I became the boy who loved Batman. That was the beginning of my journey. Yeah, it's amazing. I think stories are one of those things that can transcend cultures and things like Batman's origin story is so primal. It's so, it's something we can all relate to. It's a little bit harder to relate to a hero that falls in a vat, right? Or a hero that gets bit by something, but a hero that has that kind of loss, even if we haven't experienced that kind of loss, we can understand the impact of it. And that's why I think Batman is one of the most influential heroes. We had a psychologist on the show, Dr. Andrea Letamendi. She does a lot of interesting work on comic book psychology. And she talked about how these darker stories, these darker movies, how important they are to comic book mythos and how important they are to fans to experience kind of these darker elements in a psychological safe way, which allowed them to build these relationships and develop resiliency because they can experience kind of these darker, more real, more intense emotions in a safer kind of dome. So I think some of these darker movies, I think they're so important. Uh, I know Kevin and I both love the Joker, both love the Batman. And then looking even on the Marvel side, movies like Logan. I mean, these movies are so important because it allows us to develop and understand these more real aspects of the superhero dynamic. There's another part of this. When I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, reading comic books was the most isolated, isolating hobby you could possibly have. And only one editor, Julie Schwartz, was public, started publishing full addresses. So all of a sudden, we could actually write a letter to a fellow fan. And then fanzines started, which were fan magazines published by fans for fans. And that began the interconnectivity. Then we had the first Comic-Cons, which was New York City, followed closely by Detroit and then other places, ultimately San Diego. So what's important here to, to stress is that initially we were all loners. We were all outsiders. And what the comic books are doing and now what the, I believe the movies and the animation are doing is creating a community. It's creating a community and expanding out through social media. If the negativity and the lack of civility can be properly contained, the, the whole concept of community ties right into the issue you just brought up about how dealing in a safe environment with darker issues could be a healthy thing mentally and emotionally. Just as important is the idea that everybody out there who's a comic book reader is no longer a loner and is part and feels part of a community. Yeah, I mean, it is surely amazing today um, how big 
comic books have become and how important they are. I know that you spent 10 years of your life trying to get studios to make the Batman film, to make a superhero film that's dark and serious. But that was definitely not the norm back then for you know how superheroes were portrayed. Uh, comparing to now, generations of moviegoers equate the idea of Batman with dark and serious. So, so what was Batman's image uh, back then when you were first you first started to pitch your ideas to studios? This journey began for me on a cold night in January 1966. The Batman TV show was going to premiere, and the show came on, it was only 20, 25 minutes in that it really hit me. Oh my God, this is a comedy. They are playing Batman for laughs. Oh my God, the whole world is laughing at Batman. He's a joke. And that killed me. Remember now, not only am I a hardcore fanboy who knows the whole history of Batman and how he was created, but I heard it directly from Bill Finger as to how it, it, what their intention was. So that night after the show, I made a vow. I said, someday I am going to show the whole world the true Batman. The Batman created in 1939 is a preacher of the night stalking these deeply disturbed villains. And I'm going to find a way to get rid of these new words, pow, zap, wham and purge them from the collective consciousness of the world culture. And that first opportunity came to what you alluded to. I'm a junior at Indiana University in the early 70s. And they had started an experimental curriculum department with the concept being, if you had an idea for a college course that had never been taught before, you then had the right to appear before a dean and pitch it. So I wrote a syllabus. Comic books is an American art form. The psychology of comic books, the literature, comic book superheroes as our modern day folklore, as our contemporary mythology. So armed with that, I went to appear before the dean. And I walked in and the dean looked at me and he said, so you're the fellow who wants to teach a course on funny books at my university? Um, I begin the first pitch of my career. He let me speak for two minutes and then cut me off. He said, Mr. Usland, stop. He says, come on, I don't buy any of this. I read Superman comics when I was a little boy. All comic books are, are cheap entertainment for little children, nothing more, nothing less, and I reject your theory. And at that moment in time, I could have bowed my head, picked up my funny books, turned around and walked out, and that would have been the end of it. But believing I had absolutely nothing to lose, I decided to stand my ground. I said, Dean, may I ask you two questions? He said, ask me anything you want. I said, Dean, are you familiar with the story of Moses? He said, yeah, so? I said, so very, very briefly, could you summarize for me the story of Moses? And he folded his arms and he sat back and he said, Mr. Houston, I don't know what game you're playing here, but I'll play this with you. He said the Hebrew people were being persecuted. Their firstborn were being slain. A Hebrew couple placed their infant son in a little wicker basket and send him down the river Nile. There is discovered by an Egyptian family who raised him as their own son. 
when he grew up and learned of his true heritage, he became a great hero to his people by, I said, stop. That was great. Thank you very much. Dean, you said when you were a kid, you read Superman comics. By any chance, do you remember the origin of Superman? He said, of course, the planet Krypton was about to blow up. A scientist and his wife place their infant son in a little rocket ship and send him to Earth. There he's discovered by the Kents who raise him as their own son. When he grows up and then he stops, stares at me for what I swear to you was an eternity and says, your course is accredited. <laughs> I am now the world's first college professor of comic books. Thank you very much. No, that's, that's amazing. I love that. You know, one of the things you talked about there that made me think of is something that Stephen Dubner, the author of Freakonomics, has said on different podcasts is the importance of stories. And one of the most important things is stories are so memorable, right? Uh, when you think about the Bible, millions and millions of people have read the Bible. And um, what they remember is the stories. They have trouble repeating the Ten Commandments, but they can remember the stories from it. And comic books are such interesting vessels with different stories and it it reminds us of how powerful stories are because they're teaching us similar lessons it's teaching us people who find such value in different things can learn different lessons from different types of storytelling that's why we love comic book storytelling because it's such a diverse and creative avenue to learn life values and learn lessons you know what i love about your journey it's so much incredibly stuff this could fill two books in a broadway play and I think it might actually be doing that. So can you tell me about your two books and Dark Nights and Daydreams? I certainly can. Um, if Stan Lee was here, he would say, Michael, he's giving you an opportunity to plug something. Get in there. <laughs> um, yeah, it was an incredible long journey to bring Batman to the screen in a dark and serious way. It was literally a human endurance contest. I was a kid in my 20s when I bought the rights to Batman from DC Comics and thought that every major studio, everybody in Hollywood would just line up at my doorstep. And how could they not see the potential for sequels and animation and toys and games? And, uh, and I went out to Hollywood and I was turned down by every single studio. Not only turned down, but told it, I was told it was the worst idea they ever heard, that I was crazy. You can't do dark superheroes, Michael. You can't make serious comic book movies, Michael. You're out of your mind because nobody's ever taken an old TV show and turned it into a movie. That's never been done. So as a result, from the time I bought the rights till we finally got our first movie out in 1989, took 10 years. 10 years of rejection. 10 years of everyone telling you you suck. Your idea stinks. And it tests your mettle as a, as a human being. You've got to look deep inside yourself and say, okay, is everybody right and I'm just being stubborn? Or do I really truly believe in this? Do I really truly believe in myself? And I kept coming up with the latter answer and trying to hold on by my fingertips for 10 freaking years. I mean, close your eyes for a second, fellas, and think of where you were 10 years ago. That's a long, long time. But my brother Paul and I were taught about commitment and perseverance from our mom and sacrifice. And so I've written about that journey in my memoir. It's called The Boy Who Loved Batman. First came out in hardback in 2011 and a new revised trade paperback came out a couple of years ago. And as a result of the success of that, I was asked to write 
a sequel memoir. And my sequel memoir called Batman's Batman came out in March. So to make a long story short, um, I got a call one day from the Nederlander Organization of New York. And they, along with the Schubert's, define Broadway. They are, they are Broadway. For sure. And they said, we'd love for you to come in and we'd like to talk to you. And the bottom line was, they said, we read your book. We think coming out of COVID, this is exactly the right story with the right themes to be told in a Broadway play. And we think it's very entertaining. It's funny. It's very emotional. And it, it, it talks about dreaming big and persevering and making your dreams come true by getting up off the damn couch and being relentless and never giving up. And, and about the people, the mentors who supported you and the e evil super villains of your life who try to stop you. He, he said, we think this is the right story and the right thing for Broadway. So we are in the thick of it. And I'm gonna give you a tip off on Saturday of San Diego Comic-Con, which is July, I'm looking it up, 24, 23rd at 4.15 p.m. Room 6DE, we are going to be announcing the Broadway play. Um, I could not be more excited about it. It's weird, you know, when you sit in a creative room and somebody says something, I go, well, younger Michael wouldn't have said it that way. I go, oh my God, I'm talking about myself in the third person. This is bizarre. Um, so it, it, it's, it couldn't be any more exciting. For all the, you know, emotional and interesting true stories that you've told us uh, it's very exciting that we'll get to read uh, and watch more of your stories and going along uh, with our batman journey for you from 1989 tim burton's batman film to the most recent 2022 batman film what are some of the most notable changes to the Batman stories and values across these four decades of filmmaking and what have stayed consistent? Let me start by saying at this stage of my career in life, what has become more and more and more important to me is legacy. And four times now, and I will place a wager down that we're soon to do it five times, which is crazy. A Batman or Batman related movie has completely changed how comic book movies are perceived and how they are produced and how the visions for them can change and flip and grow and evolve. Here are my cases in point. 1989 Batman. Revolutionary, first ever dark and serious comic book feature film. And it was Tim Burton, this young genius. He said to me, Michael, if we're going to do the first ever dark and serious Batman movie, and we don't want to get unintentional laughs from the audience, the world audience who's never read a comic book, this movie cannot be about Batman. This movie must be all about Bruce Wayne. We have to show Bruce Wayne as a man so driven, so obsessed to the point of being psychotic that audiences will say, oh yeah, that's a guy who will get dressed up in a bat suit and go out and fight a guy like the Joker. 
without the laughs. And that was why it was Tim Burton who said, the guy who can pull this off is Michael Keaton. He can pull off this Bruce Wayne thing. And he was absolutely right about that. Now think about the impact of what I just said was Tim's big idea. You've all seen the Iron Man movies. You've all seen the Spider-Man movies. Shouldn't they really be entitled Tony Stark and Peter Parker? Of course, this was the big idea that launched Marvel. And Tim had a corollary to his big idea. And the corollary was Gotham City, world building. Gotham City must be the third most important character in this movie from the opening frames. Because if we can't get audiences to suspend their disbelief and believe in Gotham City, we will never get them to believe in a guy dressed up as a bat or a guy who looks like the Joker. And he was absolutely right. The game changer. Now, let's jump into the future. Christopher Nolan, an independent filmmaker, comes in whose purpose is to restore the darkness and dignity to Batman. He wants to do what Tim Burton accomplished in 89, but he wants to come at it, I believe, 180 degrees differently. Instead of building five square city blocks of Pinewood Studios on the back lot, he wanted to make us all believe that Batman could be real today, that the world was no longer the way it was in 89. It was no longer black and white, good versus evil. This was a world now post 9-11 of, it was a gray world of order versus chaos. So he wanted to make you believe Bruce Wayne could be a post-traumatic stress kid who is now on a journey of self-discovery right out of Lost Horizon. And he pulled it off with Christian Bale. He needed to make you believe that Gotham City could be real. So he chose Chicago because if you remove two iconic buildings out of the skyline of Chicago, most people around the world can't identify the city. He wanted to make you believe the Joker could be real today. So he made him into a modern day terrorist, a homicidal maniac who placed no value on human life whatsoever. And in the performance of a lifetime that he crafted with Heath Ledger, they pulled it off. Joker was real, Joker was scary. And then maybe his biggest challenge, he had to try to convince you that all the tech, all the gadgets, all the inventions were real. How the heck could he do that? He hired Morgan Freeman to tell you they were real. And if Morgan Freeman says it's true, by God, it's true. When you walk out of a Christopher Nolan Batman movie, you no longer had to say, that was a great comic book movie. You can now say, that was a great film. He elevated the whole thing. What an impact. What a game changer in the culture and in Hollywood. And then let's move to the next genius. Todd Phillips imagines what the Joker could be on his own and how when cinema is doing what it does best, it is a mirror of our society held up to the eyes of society where they have to look and see themselves, warts and all, biases and prejudices. They have to watch that. And Todd's commentary on our polarization, our lack of civility, the way we all talk at each other instead of with each other today. The fact how we've all turned our backs on issues of mental health, which tie directly into gun violence. This was an incredible breakthrough that completely flipped 
how comic book movies can be done. Matt Reeves did it again with the Batman. The fact that this was a noir crime drama about the world's greatest detective, the fact that the cinematic antecedents, precedents for this were not comic book movies. It was Silence of the Lambs and Zodiac, The Usual Suspects, Seven, The French Connection. Once again, it turned on its head what a comic book or superhero movie can be if you're willing to think out of the box and be bold and daring. And I have no doubt that Todd Phillips is about to do it again with Joker 2, which I will not comment on. I was 100% going to ask, so. (laughs) I can't take anything away from, from Todd's spotlight on that. And on a final note, how can we forget Phil Lord and Chris Miller? The dynamic duo that gave us the Lego movie, Lego Batman, turned on its head what animation can be and how it can appeal to multiple age groups and multiple generations and how you can have Batman in a comedy without him being the joke being laughed at, but you laugh along with him respectfully. It was incredible what they pulled off. And then they go ahead and do into the Spideyverse and show this was no one-shot deal. These are young geniuses. But how fortunate for me to be honored by being associated with movies involving such genius filmmakers. And my point is legacy. What these films have contributed to expanding and changing and having comic books and superheroes and supervillains being taken seriously worldwide. Something you mentioned that was really cool um, is, you know, some of these comic stories have been told for 80 years you know, decades and decades of storytelling and revamping and retelling and staying relevant. And something we talked about with Reed Tucker, who wrote the Slugfest book, was this idea of how comic books are reflections of their time. And I love how you were talking about it in the movies as well, is that no matter how amazing the Batman that just came out was, it'd be hard to take that movie and put it out 20 years ago or 30 years ago, because it was a different time. And I think this is one of the most beautiful things about comic book storytelling because of how long and how core these stories are, is that these movies, these comics, these stories are all reflections of those times. They are written in a way, in a style that's going to be impactful for the society we currently live in. And that's what's kept these stories relevant. And I think that's just so fascinating. And I could hear it the way you described it and you skipped between the movies, is that those movies were so amazing, not just because of the impact and amazement of the creators and Batman, but the fact that they were able to capture a feeling society felt at that specific time. It's so true. And um, Chris's trilogy was so directly tied into 9-11 and, and our post 9-11 years. And it, it was so thematically important. I have to relay one story. Uh, as you know, I've lectured around the world, universities, um, business conferences, Comic-Cons, And one thing I keep hearing in Q&A to this very day, somebody will get up and talk about when they went to see The Dark Knight and they were sitting in the darkness of the theater and there was a scene that took place on a ship and the people were told they had a choice. They had a moral choice. They could press a button and blow up all the people on another ship to save their lives or they could choose not to do that. 
So what happens when you're faced with a moral choice and the choices are bad and worse? And so many people tell me in the darkness of the theater, they were forced to think and deal with what would I do in that situation? And it was a moment of intense self-realization that has impacted them. And they've carried that scene with them for, for all these years. Oh my God, that was in a comic book superhero movie? That's how much as a reflection of the times, comic book movies became so thematically important. And I'll never forget at the time of Dark Knight, when I would accidentally turn on Fox News and there would be all these political pundits claiming the Dark Knight as theirs. This guy is our right wing guy. And then you turn on MSNBC or CNN and they go, oh, you know, this is the hero of the left. This is our guy. And that's the magic of Batman. Because he has no superpowers, we get to project ourselves into Batman. We identify with him based on who we are, what our philosophies are, what our politics are, and can impose it right smack on Batman. And he is our hero. He is a reflection of us. And it doesn't matter what your politics or philosophies might be. Everyone has the opportunity to make him their own. And that's magic. To close out, uh, every one of our episodes, we have this segment called Suspenders. It works like this. Uh, we ask you a fun random question that's not related to anything at all, and you can give us any random answer you feel like. Okay. Question of the day is, what movie can you watch over and over without ever getting tired of? There's two. Number one, my favorite movie of all time, Casablanca. Uh, at this point, I have seen it well over a hundred times. Um, every time I have the opportunity to see it on the big screen, it's as if I'm watching it for the first time. Um, the second movie is the only perfect movie I have ever seen. The only one where the script, the acting, the actors, uh, every detail is absolutely perfect. And it's my cousin Vinny. Awesome. Amazing. Can, by the way, I can also see over and over again Groundhog Day, which is very apropos that I could see it over and over again. And <laughs> just a quick anecdote. Um, the day came years ago. I'm at a meeting at 20th Century Fox. And, you know, you do a 10-minute schmooze before you do your pitching. And I'm sitting with all these executives and go, guys, I, I really don't understand something. I go, you had this big, successful, great movie, Groundhog Day, and you never did a sequel. How come you never did a sequel? And they said, well, Michael, to tell you the truth, we always wanted to do a sequel of Groundhog Day, but we could never figure it out. I said, I know exactly what to do. You re-release Groundhog Day, only you call it Groundhog Day 2. <laughs> <laughs> That's when they kicked me out of their office. Ah, oh, I love that. Well, thank you so much for giving us your time. It was a real honor to talk a little Batman with you today. Thank you guys so much. And please, everybody, if you're going to be at San Diego Comic-Con, I'm doing two panels there, one on our Broadway show and one on Stan Lee's Centennial, uh, where we're going to make a major announcement. And that is uh, both on that Saturday. And if you have an opportunity, uh, head on over to Amazon and check out The Boy Who Loved Batman or Batman's Batman. And uh, I hope I get a chance to meet you all. Thank you very much. 
Welcome back to Top Hat. This is the part of the episode where we dissect and analyze some of the key storytelling insights that we have got from this week's Edspert Storyteller. This week we had someone who has shepherded one of the most iconic American stories for the last 33 years through movies, animations, comics, Michael Euslin. You know, Kev, something Michael talked about this week, which was so fascinating, was his relationship with Stan Lee. Stan Lee always said that what made the superhero is really the supervillains. And one of my most favorite comic book characters of all time is the Joker. The Joker has the Batman. Superman has Lex Luthor. Um, So many iconic villains that get the audience excited. Without conflict, there is no drama. And, and we definitely see a similar approach as use of uh, this idea of uh, creating villains um, in sports too, right? Uh, for those of you who follow the NBA, like I do every era, there's, you know, players that uh, are turned into sort of a villainous character um, to kind of feed the narrative um, where that makes it easier for fans to rally behind um, their opponents, and those WWE players become... does this. Yeah, w- I was going to bring that up does too. This yeah. Very well with baby faces and heels. That brings us to our next great point: the importance of this darkness and seriousness to uh, Batman story, uh, of course, and also um, comic book or superhero stories in general. Michael talked to us about how, you know, that scene in Dark Knights where there are two ships, each side has the trigger to detonate the bomb on the other ship. And that really got the viewers themselves to think about how they would solve this problem and reflect on their own morality. Yeah, you're getting at something really interesting here. It's that idea of moral conundrums. Because the best stories, the best stories, make us think a little bit, make us question it, make us engage, make us wonder what I'd do in that situation. And villains being able to create these moral conundrums is one of the most important powers they have. It's like the Russo brothers talked about how uh, the Infinity War uh, movie was about Thanos. That's a pretty big counterexample, actually, because most people would agree that destroying half the universe isn't a pretty easy moral conundrum. But when you look at the Joker and Batman, which is something a little bit more grounded in just one city, choosing between which boat to destroy, knowing if you don't do anything, they're both going to die. It's a classic trolley problem, which is a moral conundrum in philosophy. So that was something so fascinating about the Batman series is because it's more grounded, because it's more real, because it's it's seeped in this gritty, dangerous kind of world that we can envision a little bit more easier than titans and gods it allows us to grapple with these moral conundrums a little bit better and it goes back to exactly what dr andrea letamendi talked to us about dark and serious and tragic stories um one touch so core to our beings because we can see it happening we can understand that's something that happens and it allows us to experience it in a psychologically safe way because we can go through the emotions understand it have real emotions without actually having to experience it ourselves another important part of this is how um, batman's story was able to stay relatable and relevant throughout the decades and, and we talked about how the different movie franchises really reflected uh, what was going on in the uh, with the world at the time the Dark Knight uh, trilogy portrays 
uh, the post 9/11 uh, world, and the fact that Joker really reflects the lack of civility people have towards each other. Of course, the important、uh, topic of mental health. So it is really important、um, that these stories,、uh, with the important messages they convey, they're able to ground it、uh, to、uh, the th- themes and settings that are relevant、uh, within the time they came out. You can't take the 2022 Batman and, and、uh, show it 40 years ago. That was not the world that we're living in now. We didn't have the other movies, the other culture, the other. Um, images that we have now, it is relevant to our time, and that's how Batman stays relevant. So always remember when you're telling your story, what is your audience seeing? What is your audience consuming? And how can I make my story more relevant? This has been our first episode back for season two of the Linen Suit and Plastic Tie podcast. Make sure to go out and follow us on Instagram at lspttpod. L S P T P O D. Say that three times fast.、Uh, follow us on Instagram. Find us on LinkedIn.、Uh, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review. Reach out. We love talking to y'all. We want to know what you you're thinking, what you think of the show, how we can improve, what storytellers we can get for you. Put us to work. We love you. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for taking some time out of your day to make yourself a better storyteller. You are doing amazing, and you are making yourself better every day. So we applaud you for that. We'll see you in the next one.